It has been good to study the book of Revelation together. I know it's been good for me personally. And it's always the case that the books that we get to and get to dive into, we come to love. We come to understand what they mean better. We get to understand what they matter, why and how they matter to us more. And the Lord just really encourages us and strengthens us. And my hope this morning is that, again, we'll look at God's Word and we'll see what it means and have it fall on our hearts and make the impression that He wants to have in our hearts. That's my desire as we turn to Revelation 2. Last week we considered uh, the first part uh, to this letter, the alert church. And that was given what we learned in the book of Acts and how the Apostle Paul had told the elders of the church of Ephesus, uh, those elders who had met him in Miletus there, to be alert because there was a lot coming their way. And they listened. And they were a church that was alert. And they had many, many commendable qualities. And those qualities are more in number than seemingly any other church that he is going to commend. As I said last week, so often we run past all of those commendable things in the church of Ephesus and we run to what we'll consider today. And I do pray, as some of you may have heard this sermon before, or heard a sermon by another preacher on this text before, that we'll allow it to have a fresh effect on our hearts today as we go to his word again. So my dear brothers and sisters in the Lord, today let's consider our first love. Our first love. Father, as we again bow before you, we ask that we would have the Spirit of Jesus Christ, who at no time was he rebellious to the leading of the Holy Spirit in his life. So we would ask for help that as we would hear your Spirit speak through the word you have given, that we would not be rebellious, but that we'd be obedient. We do pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. I remember the first time that I got behind the wheel. It was new. It was exciting. And it was a bit hard on the neck. Well, that was because my braking needed a little bit of help. And my driver's ed instructor noted that on my assessment form. Because my braking was quite jerky. You must gradually brake when you brake. He also noted on my uh, driver's assessment test that I need to work on my turns. You need to slow down when you go into your turns because you're not supposed to go into a 90-degree turn at the same speed you're driving down the road at. You need to slow down. Well, that's how it was my first time, and I remember that time. And since that time, I have driven many, many times, hundreds of times, and perhaps you've had the experience that I've had where You get in the car, you go somewhere, and you arrive there. And you think, as you step out of the car, I I don't even realize that I was driving. I mean, I've been driving for 10 minutes. I've been driving for an hour, and I don't remember any of it. I mean, that's how it is nowadays. It's not like the first time. Well, sometimes that is how it goes with religion. Sometimes it's the kind of thing where It's like you're just going. You're not even realizing what's happening. We know that that is not a good thing when it comes to religion because of what Christ said to this church 
in Ephesus. We've been reading through Christ's assessment of this church in Revelation 2, 1 through 7. And this is the first of seven messages that Christ gives to the churches in Asia Minor. Now, in relation to the rest of the churches, this church was the mother church. It was certainly the most significant church in the New Testament at that time. This church was founded about 52 A.D., and it was pastored by people that you and I know. People like the Apostle Paul, Apollos, Timothy, and according to tradition, the Apostle John. We would obviously conclude then, and rightly conclude, that this must have been a well-taught church. But what was Christ's assessment? We have to consider this because people make assessments of churches all the time. People visit churches and they're looking for different things. They might ask themselves, well, how big was the church? How many programs did the church have for my children? How was the music of the church? Was it modern enough? And what's unique, as people ask questions of churches today, to contrast the questions that they ask with the things that Jesus notices and commends. So as we studied last time, we looked at a number of things that Christ commends in the church. We see those are so different than most of the things we hear about when people think positively and talk positively about a church. We might even be surprised by those things. What Christ notes is their toil and their perseverance. Christ said that the church of Ephesus was a hard-working church, a patiently enduring church. Now we go on to consider what else he had to say to them. And as we go through the rest of this, you probably heard a message on this church before, and perhaps you've heard that this church is labeled as a church that was orthodox. A church that's orthodox, which is to say they're a church that had sound doctrine. What's unique about that assessment is you don't find Christ referring to doctrine at all when he commends them. Does he talk about the Trinity, the substitutionary atonement of Christ? Does he talk about the authority of Scripture in those verses? No. None of those doctrines are mentioned. And instead of Christ talking about what they believe, he notes what they do. He talks about their works. And he commends them for their toil in opposing evil and their perseverance for his sake. And it's from their right works that is interpreted that they must then have had the right doctrine. Therefore, we assume that they were orthodox. We assume their orthodoxy by their orthopraxy. They held the line against evil and they held up under pressure. That's the church of Ephesus. But this is a church... That was like a great ship with a leak in its hull. Christ is the founder and builder of the church, and he knew all about this church, and he knew what was wrong with them, and he wanted to make the church aware of it. And by extension, he makes all churches aware of this very considerable flaw, this leak. You say, well... How come Jesus has the right to command such things of the church? Well, he is head over the church. He's in charge of it. He's the sovereign Lord. He is the exalted Christ at the right hand of the Father. And given the fact that he is the exalted Lord, he not only deserves the tireless efforts of the church, but he also deserves the total devotion of the church. That's what we'll learn today. So as we move through the rest of this letter, 
we'll learn that Christ desires something for our church because of how we dealt with that church. He desires that our church would examine our love, that our church would return to our first love, and that our church would overcome any lack of love. Three simple points this morning. The first is that Christ desires our church to examine our love. Christ pointed out the lack of love in the Ephesian church. Look at verse 4. Christ speaking to his people there in Ephesus says to them, but I have this against you. And that's divine displeasure. After a whole lot of praise, Christ now mentions he's, he's disapproving of something. You say, well, what wasn't to like about the church? The church wasn't mechanical. It wasn't ritualistic. These are people who were sweating for Christ's sake. They are bearing up for Christ's sake. There is nothing easy about this church. They're working hard. This church isn't wicked. Instead, they hated evil. And they hated and they were, or they were intolerant of those who were evil. This church wasn't selfish. Instead, we learned that they endured a great deal for Christ's sake. So their motive was spot on. It was Christ-centered. Yet Christ is displeased. And it's his displeasure, which is the impetus for the church to take a closer look. Where are they supposed to look? The rest of verse 4 tells us that you have abandoned the love you had at first. This is where Christ notices a deficient devotion. A deficient devotion. What was their lack of love? You quickly look at your English translations and you realize that there's a different way that these folks have chosen to translate this verse. Some people know... Some of your translations read first love. Other translations read the love you had at first. Say, what's the difference? The difference is this. It's between an object and an affection. Between a person and a passion. If you want to go culinary for a moment, it's between an ingredient and the amount of that ingredient. Come. Well, if we're going to figure this out, we've got to figure out the identity of this first love. Who is a Christian's first love? And we all should be able to respond, Christ. Because Christ himself said this in the Gospels. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he turns his turns it and says it the other way. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. That's to say, to become a Christian, you must choose to love Christ the most. Affection for him must be far superior to all other affections. And that's why so many people today aren't Christians. Because they love something else. That's why they're not here today, because they love something else. That's where they are. But for those of us who are here today, it may even be possible that someone here is not yet a Christian because you love something else. You love something more than Christ. And the problem with that is... Whatever you're loving more doesn't deserve to be loved 
more than Christ. God declares that he is the ultimate object of affection. His law is simple. Love God. Man's problem is simple. Man hasn't loved God as he ought to have loved God. Man's remedy is simple. Christ has made up for man's lack of love. He has done so through his life, his death, and his resurrection. And trusting in Christ for forgiveness for all of that lack of love is man's only hope. For a Christian, Christ is the first love. Is he your first love? That's the first question, especially for someone who doesn't know the Lord Jesus Christ. Will you choose to put other things aside and set him as foremost in your life? In a nutshell, that is keeping you from Christianity. And today, you could call on the name of the Lord and be saved. For those of us who know Christ, that is what we did for some of us decades ago. The question then, considering the Ephesian church, is have they abandoned Christ? Well, according to verse 3, they haven't. Verse 3 says that they were bearing up for my name's sake. So Christ is not absent from this church. But what is true is that their love for Christ had waned. It's not what it was at first. And perhaps the, perhaps the simplest way to explain this is with the illustration that God has given us in marriage. You know when a man and a woman are joined in marriage, they are full of affection for one another. Think back to Genesis chapter 29 with Jacob and Rachel. Laban, Rachel's father, told Jacob that he would give his daughter to him in marriage if he would work for him for seven years. And the Bible says Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. I mean, that's how things are early in a relationship. But as time passes, the affection wanes. Now, certainly, a spouse may continue to live with, with his spouse for years on end. They work hard to provide for their spouse a place to live, a very comfortable living. They may even keep up with their spouse's birthday and the anniversaries through the Google Calendar reminders. They do many things every single day. They work, they sweat for their spouse. And despite all of that hard work, the love can still wane. And that's what Christ pinpoints in the church in Ephesus. And that's something that other churches have to examine about themselves because Christ desires full and complete devotion. He desires that His church would return to their first love. That's what we find in verse 5. And Christ is going to command the Ephesian church to recover its first love. Look at verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, And do the works you did at first. So Christ gives a a, a clear path to what he desires for this church. Number one, they must recall their former condition. That's what we learn for ourselves. Recall your former condition. It was a condition that was higher than your current state because it's one that you've fallen from, the text says. This must have been something that is post-conversion as compared to pre-conversion. What is it like when we're first saved? What is that high state? 
Well, that's when we loved Christ. But why is it that our love for Christ is so fervent at the beginning? That's a question we all need to ask ourselves and know the answer to today. And we can find the answer by taking a trip to Simon's dinner party in Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, verses 36 and following, we read about Jesus and his disciples who went to dinner at the home of Simon, who was one of the Pharisees. And something very strange happened at that gathering. A woman of the city came in. She washed Jesus' feet with her tears. She wiped his feet with her hair. She kissed his feet, and she anointed his feet with expensive perfume. Now, if that same thing were to happen to you today at Sunday lunch, you would be shocked. And that's exactly how their disciples responded. Shocked. What's the point of all of it? Well, Jesus tells you exactly what the point is at the end of that episode. Luke seven forty seven. Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. And notice how it closes. But he who is forgiven little loves little. Notice the math of this. There is a direct line between love and forgiveness. The point is, the love at first for Christ is fueled by a vivid understanding of all that we have been forgiven of. And it's our forgetfulness of what we've been forgiven of that leads to our coldness, that makes our love wane. Therefore, what Christ counsels us to do is to remember. Say, well, how do you do that? Thomas Goodwin, who was an English Puritan theologian and preacher of the 17th century, he provides us a way for for us to consider how to make this practical. He once wrote in a letter that there were times that on a Sunday morning he would sense his heart's cold, that he wasn't ready to go present God's Word to God's people on the Lord's Day. So what he would do is he would take a turn. And to us, we would say he took a walk. And while he was on a walk, he would list through in his mind all the sins that Christ had forgiven him for. I don't know if those sins were sins that were before he was saved or after he was saved. But as he went through all of those things, as he went through God's abundant forgiveness in Christ, his heart was aflame. I think that gives us a good understanding of what we need to do. Go out and take a walk. Take a walk. Take a turn. And remember God's grace in forgiving you of all of your sin. Many have said that memory is the handmaid to revival. And that's what Christ calls us to. To remember In addition to recalling our former condition, we also need to agree with what God thinks about our current condition. That is to say, we need to repent of our faulty thinking. Not only recall our former condition, but repent of your faulty thinking. He says to them, repent. And repentance is a change of mind. 
Perhaps one of the best illustrations of this you can mark in, in the margin would be in Matthew 21, 28, and 29. Jesus told the parable of two sons, and those sons were told by their father to go work for him. And one of the sons says no. But the verse goes on to say, but then he changed his mind and went and worked. That's repentance. He changed his mind. And that's what Christ is calling for. He is calling for the reworking of our hearts that will lead to a proper living before God. And the mistake that many Christians have today and many non-Christians have is they think when God says repent, He just wants them to try better, to do better, to turn over a new leaf. But that's not repentance because there's been no rewiring of the heart. There's been no consideration of God's truth and our understanding of it and our allegiance and agreement with it. You say, well, what kind of rewiring did the Ephesians need in their hearts? We already know that they had toiled and borne up for Christ, but they're not totally devoted to Christ. It may have looked like they were completely devoted to God on the outside, but it wasn't the case on the inside. And if you're going to rewire a faulty heart, then you need to go back to some of the primary doctrines like God deserves all of our affections. That's why He commands us to love Him wholeheartedly. He deserves that much love of every single person He made. That's the truth. And the the Ephesian church needed to come to grips with that truth and acknowledge they haven't loved God like that. Their devotion in some way was divided. And you know what? Sometimes when... When we realize that, when we're, when we're quiet in our hearts, when we've pushed all the things aside in our day and we actually think about that, it's quite sobering and perhaps discouraging to us. But brothers and sisters, let me encourage you because of this. When we're concerned about our coldness towards Christ, it's because God has put a yearning for Himself in our hearts. The very sense that we have of we're cold towards the Lord is God's grace towards us that He wants us to come to Him, wants us to yearn for Him, to be fervent for Him, to love Him completely. So God is good to give us that sense. And He is good to not only have us recall our former condition and have us repent of our faulty thinking, but He wants us to repeat our former deeds. That's where it says at the end of verse, or the middle of verse 5, do the works you did at first. Christ has already said, you've done a whole lot of things. He's already numbered their their deeds. But the remedy for their lack of love is they need to redo their former deeds. What's that? Well, if you've listened to a sermon on this passage before, this is when the preacher gets to say anything he wants. They start saying things about witnessing and worship and Bible reading and prayer and love for others. And whatever the preacher wants to say, this is where he inserts it. And sometimes preachers will attack practices that are exactly what Christ commended in verses 2, 3, and 6, which ought not be so. So what are these former deeds? How are we supposed to figure out what Christ is talking about? Well, let's begin by just analyzing the passage historically. What were the first deeds that the Ephesian believers did? We actually have these things recorded in Acts chapter 19. Acts 19, verses 18 and 19. These were people who worshipped the goddess Artemis. 
And they were people who gave uh, their, themselves and their, their lives and their work to worshiping this God. And many of them uh, made idols and such. So we read in Acts 19 that they confessed and divulged their practices, and they burned their books. And those books were valued at 50,000 pieces of silver. That's to say 50,000 days of pay. That's a lot of money. The first thing they did was rid themselves of former lifestyle, former practices. Now, that would have been about 52 A.D. and Revelations written about 40 years later, so it's very possible that the saints have gone on, and maybe we're dealing with the second generation of Christians here. We can't know for sure, but we do know what other people in the Gospels first did when they were converted. Think about Zacchaeus. What's the first thing he did when he was converted? Young people? Zacchaeus righted his wrongs towards other people. Think about the demoniac. The first thing that he did when he had repented of his sins, he proclaimed all over the place what Christ had done for him. Think about the 3,000 who were saved on Pentecost, who gave themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowshipping with the other believers, to the Lord's Supper, and to prayer, Acts chapter 2. So these actions show that there is a devotion to God, there's a love for God's people, and there's a love for the lost. And they represent whatever a believer thinks he ought to do Because now, he's been forgiven of all of his sin, and he loves the Lord. So so really, it is wide open. It can can show itself in many different ways as we read through Scripture. The question is, can you think of a time that you were closer to the Lord? And God is calling on his people to say, well, get there again. Don't wait for some feeling to compel you to get there You see, it's easier to act your way into a feeling than to feel your way into an action. Christ is calling for an action. And he can call for that because he deserves total and complete affection. So we should recall. We should repent. We should repeat. And all of those things are going to bring us unto a proper affection for God. What happens if we don't do that? Christ tells us. Look at verse 5. He says, If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. This is where we need to register forthcoming judgment. This is not referring to Christ's second coming. This is referring to Christ's special coming. He is threatening to shut down the church if they don't respond. So theologically, this is what we would say. Eternal security is something that every saved person has. But the local church does not have eternal security. God can dispose of any church anytime he wants. He can shut their doors. And he's saying, you need to heed what I'm saying to you. You know, you and I are driving down the road to keep things automotive for a while. You and I drive down the road, lights are flashing at us, beeps are going off, and it says, door ajar, door ajar. And you think, yes, there's a door ajar, because I have a long board sticking out the back end of my van, of course. And you can drive down the road with warning lights going on, and you're okay. 
But when you see a warning light with your engine flashing or with tire pressure, you need to think. Because if you ignore the engine light, you're going to have to buy a new engine. If you ignore the tire pressure, you're probably going to lose control and crash. There are certain things that you better pay attention to. That's what Christ is saying here. He threatens the Ephesian church because of their lack of love. They're saying, you have to deal with this. You may be good in a lot of other ways, but this is something that is essential. Deal with it. And by extension, all of the churches of Asia needed to examine themselves and consider this. And so do we. Lastly, this morning, Christ desires that our church would overcome any lack of love. We know that it's his desire because he offered life in paradise to the Ephesian church. Look at verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That's to say, you've got to pay attention to what God says. A lot of people wonder what they should do with their life. It really is quite clear because God has made it clear in his word. If you're going to set your life right, you need to do what God says in his word because the, the solution's not vague. The issue is always the same. It's whether or not you and me will agree with God and what he said and do it. That, that's where the rubber meets the road. Are you willing to heed it, to hear it, and to heed it? He's saying you need to. And he gives you motivation to listen to him. He gives you motivation to listen to the exalted Christ who speaks through his Holy Spirit as, as do, he directs the, John to write this to us. And now we have a motivation at the end of verse 7. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So Christ is saying at the end, you need to overcome this lack of love. Obviously, the Bible teaches that all Christians are conquerors through faith in Christ, 1 John 5, 5. But what Christ is calling for here in particular is that his people would overcome sin, that they would persevere. He calls them to that with the promise of life in paradise, that he will give them immortality with him forever and glory. And that's how each one of these letters to the seven churches ends. There is a unique benefit that is given to the overcomer, which is fulfilled when Christ overcomes all things. And as we go through the rest of this book, we're going to see that Christ will indeed overcome all things. So he holds out this promise to us. He wants us to respond to it. I guess as we close, we just wonder then, well, what did the church in Ephesus do? Did, did they respond? Well, if you look at history, the answer is yes. Ignatius, who was a disciple of the Apostle John, lives, lived during his time and just beyond his time. Ignatius wrote to the church of Ephesus, and in the prologue to that letter, he noted that they had a renewed love. He seemed to think that they had responded to what John had written in 95 A.D., but in the years past, in the years since, the, the very city of Ephesus is gone. There's no church there. There's no city there. So now the lampstand has been removed, and Christ always has the right to do that kind of thing. But at least initially, this church was exemplary. So as we close and we think of this church at Ephesus, this is a church that we can learn a great deal from. 
This was a church that toiled for Christ's sake. This was a church that endured for Christ's sake. And when Christ corrected them, they responded. They responded by loving the Lord as they had done at first. And that's what we need to pray for ourselves, that we would love the Lord as He deserves, as we did at first. Let's close in prayer. Father, for some of us, we have to think back decades to the day, to the time that we came to know you as personal Lord and Savior, to the day that we called on you for mercy. And you were merciful to us, that you caused us to be born again, that you gave us life, we who were dead in trespasses and sin. And Lord, you saved us from all of our sin, and and, and you forgave us of all of our sin. For some of us, that was years ago, and we can remember all that you did in changing us and the desire that we had for you. For some of us, that that was just recent. It's not hard to think back to that at all and how undivided we were in our affection. Help us to acknowledge that it is easy for our love for you to wane. But that is not something that you will allow to go unnoticed and unaddressed. So Lord, we pray that you will help us. Indeed, we need to have more affection for you. We do need to have more passion for you. But our passion must be rooted in what you have done for us. So help us to consider all that we have been forgiven of. Help us to consider the undevoted, the undivided devotion we've had for you. And let's go to that again for your sake and for the sake of this church. Help us to take this warning seriously. We do pray for your grace to that end with the encouragement that we can respond in obedience even as the Ephesian church did. You can bless us and you can strengthen us. Lord, you can give us a great and abundant life which enjoys closeness to our God and Savior. We ask for that today in Jesus' name. Amen.